Section 21 of A History of the Four Georges and of William the Fourth in Four Volumes, Volume 3, by Justin McCarthy and Justin Huntley McCarthy. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 57 Fox and Pitt, Part 1. Pitt entered public life the inheritor of a great name, the transmitter of a great policy, at a time when the country was in difficulty and the government in danger. In the January of 1781, North was still in power, was still supported by the king, had still some poor shreds of hope that something, anything, might happen to bring England out of the struggle with America. In the November of the same year, North reeled to his fall with the news of the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown. In those ten months, Pitt had already made himself a name in the House of Commons. He was no longer merely the son of Pitt. He was Pitt. He had attached himself to an opposition that was studded with splendid names, and had proved that his presence added to the luster. The heroes and leaders of opposition at Westminster welcomed him to their ranks with a generous admiration and enthusiasm. Fox, ever ready to applaud possible genius, soon pronounced him to be one of the first men in Parliament. Burke hailed him, not as a chip of the old block, but as the old block itself. The praises of Burke and of Fox were great, but they were not undeserved. When the ministry of Lord North fell into the dust, when the King was compelled to accept the return of the Whigs to office, Pitt had already gained a position which entitled him in his own eyes not to accept office but to refuse it. Rockingham formed a ministry for the second time. The new ministry was formed of an alliance between the two armies of the Rockingham Whigs and the Shelburne Whigs. Rockingham represented the political principles that dated from the days of Walpole. Shelburne represented or misrepresented the principles that dated from the days of Chatham. The king would very much have preferred to take Shelburne without Rockingham, but even the king had to recognize that it was impossible to gratify his preference. Even if Shelburne had been a much better leader than he was, he had not the following which would entitle him to form a ministry on his own account and Shelburne was by no means a good leader. To the liberal politician of today, Shelburne seems a much more desirable and admirable statesman than Rockingham. Most of his political ideas were in advance of his time, and his personal friendships prove him to have been a man of appreciative intelligence. He had proved his courage in his youth as a soldier at Campen and Minden. He had maintained his courage in 1780, when he faced and was wounded by the pistol of Fullerton. But his gifts, whatever they were, were not of the quality nor the quantity to make a leader of men. He could not form a ministry for himself, and he was not an element of stability in any ministry of which he was a member. The administration formed by the alliance of Rockingham and Shelburne could boast of many brilliant names, and showed itself laudably anxious to add to their number. In an administration which had Fox for a Secretary of State, Burke for Paymaster General of the Forces, and Sheridan for Under Secretary of State, 
the vice-treasurership of Ireland was offered to Pitt. Pitt declined the offer. He had made up his mind that he would not accept a subordinate situation. Conscious of his ability, he was prepared to wait. He had not to wait long. During the four agitated months of life allowed to the Rockingham administration, Pitt distinguished himself by a motion for reform in the representative system which was applauded by Fox and by Sheridan, but which was defeated by twenty votes. Peace and reform were always passions deeply seated at the heart of Pitt. It was ironic chance that associated him hereafter so intimately with war and with antagonism to so many methods of reform in which he earnestly believed. When the quarrels between Fox and Shelburne over the settlement of the American War ended, after Rockingham's death in July of 1782, in the withdrawal from the ministry of Fox, Burke, and the majority of the Rockingham party, Pitt rightly saw that his hour had come. Fox resigned rather than serve with Shelburne. Pitt accepted Shelburne and made Shelburne's political existence possible a little longer. With the aid of Pitt, Shelburne could hold on and let Fox go. Without Pitt, Fox would have triumphed over Shelburne. From this moment began the antagonism between Fox and Pitt, which was to last for the remainder of their two brief lives. At the age of twenty-three, Pitt found himself Chancellor of the Exchequer and one of the most conspicuous men in the kingdom. Fox, who was ten years older, was defeated by the youth whose rivalry had been predicted to Fox when the youth was yet a child. Pitt's triumph lasted less than a year. Fox, conscious of his own great purposes, and eager to return to office for their better advancement, was prepared to pay a gambler's price for power, to overthrow Shelburne and with Shelburne Pitt. He needed a pretext and an ally. The pretext was easy to find. He had but to maintain that the terms of the peace with America were not the best that the country had a right to expect. The ally was easy to find and disastrous to accept. Nothing in the whole of Fox's history is more regrettable than his unnatural alliance with Lord North. Ever since the hour when Fox had found his true self and had passed from the ranks of the obedient servants of the king into the ranks of those who devoted themselves to the principles of liberty, there had been nothing and there could have been nothing in common between Fox and North. Everything that Fox held most dear was detestable to North, as North's political doctrines were now detestable to Fox. The political enmity of the two men had been bitter in the extreme, and Fox had assailed North with a violence which might well seem to have made any form of political reconciliation impossible. Yet North was now the man with whom Fox was content to throw in his lot in order to obtain the overthrow of Shelburne and of Pitt, and Fox was not alone among great Whigs in this extraordinary transaction. He carried Burke with him in this unholy alliance between all that was worst in all that was best in English political life. The two men whose genius and whose eloquence 
had been the most potent factors in the fall of north a year before were now the means of bringing the discredited and defeated statesmen back into the exercise of a power which as none knew better than they he had so shamefully misused fox and north between them swept shelburne out of the field fox and north between them were able to force a coalition ministry upon a reluctant and indignant king the followers of fox and the followers of north in combination formed so numerous and so solid a party that they were able to treat the sovereign with a lack of ceremony to which he was little used fox had gone out of office rather than admit that the right to nominate the first minister rested with the king instead of with the cabinet now that he had returned to office he showed his determination to act up to his principles by not permitting the king to nominate a single minister the king's contempt for north since the failure to coerce america the king's dislike of fox since fox became an advanced politician were deepened now into uncompromising and unscrupulous enmity by the cavalier conduct of the coalition the king with his doggedness of purpose and his readiness to use any weapons against those whom he chose to regard as his enemies was a serious danger even to a coalition that seemed so formidable as the coalition between fox and north fox may very well have thought that his unjustifiable league with north would at least have the result of giving him sufficient time and sufficient influence to carry into effect some of those schemes for the good of the country which he had most nearly at heart the statesman who makes some unhappy surrender of principle some ignoble concession to opportunity in order to obtain power makes his unworthy bargain from a conviction that his hold of office is essential to the welfare of the state and that a little evil is excusable for a great good the sophistry that deceives the politician does not deceive the public fox gravely injured his position with the people who loved him by stooping to the pact with north and he did not reap that reward of success in his own high-minded and high-hearted purposes which could alone have excused his conduct the great coalition which was to stand so strong and to work such wonders was destined to vanish like a breath after accomplishing nothing and to condemn fox with all his hopes and dreams to a career of almost unbroken opposition for the rest of his life if anything in fox's chequered career could be more tragic than the degradation of his union with the politician whom he declared to be void of every principle of honor and honesty it was the abiding consequences of the retribution that followed it fox had fought hard and with success to live down the follies of his youth he had to fight harder and with far less success to live down what the world persisted in regarding as the infamy of his association with north it is difficult to realize the arguments which persuaded fox which persuaded burke to join their forces with the fallen minister whom their own mouths but a little while before had in no measured terms declared to be guilty of the basest conduct and deserving of the severest punishment 
all that we know of Fox, all that we know of Burke, and it is possible to know them almost as well as if they were the figures of contemporary history, would seem to deny the possibility of their condescending to any act of conscious baseness. Stained and sullied, as the youth of Fox had been, with some of the most flagrant vices of a flagrantly vicious society, his record as gambler, as spendthrift, and as libertine seems relatively clean in comparison with this strange act of public treason to the chosen beliefs of his manhood, of public apostasy, from those high and generous principles by whose strenuous advocacy he had redeemed his wasted youth. Fiery as Burke's temper had often proved itself to be, fantastic and grotesque as his obstinacy had often showed itself in clinging defiantly to some crotchet or whimsy that seemed to the spectator unworthy the adhesion of his great intellect, his most eccentric action, his most erratic impulse, appeared sweetly reasonable and serenely lucid when contrasted with the conduct which allowed him to guide and to be guided by Fox in a course that proved as foolish as it looked disgraceful to lead or to follow Fox into packing cards with their arch-enemy of the American War. On the face of it, there is nothing that seems not merely to justify but even to palliate the conduct of Fox and Burke. Ugly as the deed seemed to the men of their day, to the men who believed in them, trusted them, loved them, it seemed no less ugly to those who at the distance of a century revere their memories and cherish their teachings. One thing may be, must be assumed by those before whom the lives of Fox and Burke lie bare, that men so animated by high principles, so illuminated by high ideals, cannot deliberately, of set purpose, have sinned against the light. They must have felt, and strongly felt, their justification for entering on a course which was destined to prove so disastrous. Their justification probably was the conviction nursed, if not expressed, that to statesmen whose hands are so full of blessings, to statesmen whose hearts are so big with splendid enterprises, a trivial show of concession, a little paltering with the punctilio of honor, a little eating of brave words, and a little swallowing of principle, was a small price to pay, and a price well worth paying for the immeasurable good that England was to gather from their supremacy. Whatever may have been the motives which induced Fox and Burke to ally themselves with a discredited and defeated politician like Lord North, the results of that alliance were as unsatisfactory to the high contracting parties as the most rigid believer in poetic justice could desire. The coalition ministry was unlucky enough in its enterprise to satisfy George himself, who had talked of going back to Hanover rather than accept its services, and had only been dissuaded from self-exile by the sardonic reminder of Lord Thurlow that it might be easier for the king to go to Hanover than to return again to England. Burke inaugurated his new career at the pay office by an unhappy act of patronage. He insisted upon restoring to their offices two clerks named Powell and Bembridge, who had been removed and arraigned for malversation, and he insisted upon defending his indefensible action in the House of Commons with a fury that was as diverting to his opponents 
as it was distracting to his colleagues. Fox, who had earned so large a share of public admiration for his advocacy of what now would be called liberal opinions, was naturally held responsible by the public for the successful opposition of the coalition ministry to Pitt's plan of parliamentary reform. Pitt's proposal was not very magnificent. He asked the House to declare that measures were highly necessary to be taken for the future prevention of bribery and expense at elections. He urged that for the future, when the majority of voters for any borough should be convicted of gross and notorious corruption before a select committee of the House appointed to try the merits of any election, such borough should be disfranchised, and the minority of voters not so convicted should be entitled to vote for the county in which such borough should be situated. He suggested that an addition of knights of the shire and of the representatives of the metropolis should be made to the state of the representation. He left the number to the discussion and consideration of the House, but for his own part he stated that he should propose an addition of one hundred representatives. Pitt's scheme was scarcely a splendid measure of reform, but at least it was a measure of reform, and it met with small mercy at the hands of the coalition, being defeated by a majority of 293 to 149. This was not an auspicious beginning for the new ministry, and it was scarcely surprising that many of Fox's adherents in the country should resent his employment of the swollen forces that were practically, if not technically, under his command, to compass the defeat of a bill which, however inadequate, did at least endeavor to bring about a much-needed improvement. The great adventure of the coalition ministry, the deed by which it hoped to justify its existence, and by which indeed it has earned its only honorable title to remembrance, was the bill which is known to the world as Fox's India Bill. If the extending influence of England in India was a source of pride to the English people, it was also a source of grave responsibility. The conditions under which the influence was exercised, the weaknesses and inadequacies of the system by which the East India Company exercised its semi-regal authority, were becoming more apparent with every succeeding year to the small but steadily increasing number of persons who took a serious and intelligent interest in Indian affairs. A series of events to be referred to later had served to force into a special prominence the difficulties and the dangers of the existing state of affairs, and to fasten the attention of thinkers upon the evils that had resulted, and the evils that must yet result from its continuance. To mitigate those evils in the present, and to minimize them in the future, Fox, inspired and aided by Burke's splendid knowledge of Indian affairs, worked out a measure which was confidently expected to substitute order for disorder and reason for unreason. In the November of 1783, Pitt addressed a challenge to the ministry, calling upon them to bring forward some measure securing and improving the advantages to be derived from England's eastern possessions, some measure not of temporary palliation and timorous expedience, but vigorous and effectual, suited to the magnitude, the importance, and the alarming exigencies of the case. Fox answered this challenge by asking leave to bring in a bill 
for vesting the affairs of the East India Company in the hands of certain commissioners for the benefit of the proprietors and the public. At the same time, Fox asked leave to bring in another bill for the better government of the territorial possessions and dependencies in India. These two bills, supplementing each other, formed, in the opinion of those who framed and who advocated them, a simple, efficient, and responsible plan for the better administration of England's Indian dependencies. However tentative and incomplete they may now appear, as a means of dealing with a problem of such vast importance and such far-reaching consequences, they certainly were measures the adoption of which must have proved a gain to the country governing and to the country governed. The measures which it is probable were originally planned out by Burke, but to which it is certain that Fox devoted all the strength of his intellect and all the enthusiasm of his nature, were of a daring and comprehensive character. The first proposed to make a clean sweep of the existing state of things in India by the appointment of a board composed of seven commissioners to whom absolute authority over the East India Company's property and over the appointment or removal of holders of offices in India was to be entrusted for a term of four years. This term of four years was not to be affected by any changes of administration that might occur in England during the time. The commerce of the company was to be managed by a council of directors who were themselves entirely under the control of the seven commissioners. The commissioners and the directors were required to lay their accounts before the proprietors every six months and before both houses at the beginning of every session. The commissioners were, in the first instance, to be appointed by Parliament, that is to say, by the ministry headed by Fox and North, at the end of the four years they were to be appointed by the crown the court of proprietors was to fill up the vacancies in the council of directors the second and less important measure dealt with the powers of the governor-general and council and the conduct to be observed toward the princes and natives of india the first measure was the measure of paramount importance the measure from which fox and his friends hoped so much the measure which aroused in a very peculiar degree the anger of the king and the king's followers. They saw in a moment the enormous influence that the passing of the measure would place in the hands of Fox. The names of the commissioners were left blank in the bill, but when their names came to be filled up in committee, they were all filled with the names of followers of Fox. It was argued that were the bill to become law, a set of persons extremely obnoxious to the king would have in their hands for a solid term of years the entire administration of India and the control of an amount of patronage estimated at not less than 300,000 a year. This would enable them to oppose to the royal prerogative of patronage an influence of like nature brought with it scarcely less than royal power. It is scarcely surprising that Pitt should have employed all his eloquence and all his energy against what he described as the boldest and most unconstitutional measure ever attempted, transferring at one stroke, in spite of all charters and compacts, the immense patronage and influence of the East to Charles Fox in or out of office. If Pitt was the most conspicuous opponent of the India bills, 
only less conspicuous was a man who though much pitt's senior was still young and who had already made himself prominent in the house of commons not merely as a politician of general ability but as one who took a special interest in the affairs of india henry dundas had been a characteristic ornament of the scottish bar at once a skilful lawyer and an attractive man of the world when eight years before the existence of the coalition ministry he had come to st stephen's as lord advocate an ambition to shine as a statesman and an extraordinary power of application had equipped him with the varied information that enabled him to assert himself as an authority in many departments of national business he had early recognized the importance of india as a field for the powers of a rising politician and he had devoted to india and to indian affairs that tireless assiduity which permitted him at once to appear a convivial spirit with the temperament and leisure of a man of pleasure and a master of profound and intricate subjects the secret of which was only known to those who were acquainted with his habit of early rising and his indefatigable capacity for work in the time that he allotted to work when the public attention was directed to india toward the close of the american war and when a very general sense of indignation was aroused by the mismanagement that lessened and that threatened to destroy british influence in the east dundas came forward with the confident air of one who was intimately acquainted with the complicated problem and who believed himself perfectly competent to set all difficulties right he was the chairman of the select committee of the house of commons appointed to inquire into the causes of the war in the carnatic and he impressed himself upon the house as an authority upon india of no mean order both in the report from that committee and in a bill which he himself introduced for the purpose of dealing with the indian question he did not succeed in carrying his measure but he took care that his knowledge of his subject increased in proportion to its growing importance in the public view and his ready eloquence and specious show of information made him a very valuable ally for pitt and a fairly formidable opponent to fox in the heady debates over the measures to which the political honor of the dishonorable coalition was pledged the india bill had a more serious enemy than dundas a more serious enemy than pitt so far as the immediate effect of enmity upon public opinion is to be estimated there was an attorney in london named james sayer whose private means enabled him to neglect his profession and devote himself to the production of political caricatures and squibs sayer was one of the many who believed in the rising star of pitt and he proved his belief by the publication of a caricature which fox himself is said to have admitted gave the india bill its severest blow in public estimation this caricature was called carlo khan's triumphal entry into leadenhall street it represented fox in the grotesque attire of a theatrical oriental potentate and with a smile of conquest upon his black-haired face perched upon an elephant with the staring countenance of lord north that was led by burke whose spectacled acridity was swollen with the blowing of a trumpet from which depended a map of india 
the caricature was ingenious timely and extraordinarily efficacious in harming the measure and its champions it had an enormous sale it was imitated and pirated far and wide it carried to all parts of the kingdom the conviction that fox was aiming at nothing less than a dictatorship of india and it intensified the general animosity toward the measures and the men of the coalition ministry more effectively than any amount of speeches in westminster could have done but it had no more power to weaken the solid majority of the ministry in the house of commons than the hurried erudition of dundas or than what walpole called the bristol stone of pitt's eloquence as contrasted with the diamond reason of fox's solid sense neither political caricature nor popular disapproval neither the indignation of the king nor the opulence of the fearful and furious east india company could prevent fox from carrying his measure in the house of commons by means of the sheer force of numbers that he had obtained by his unhallowed compact with north End of section twenty one